Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. But the anointing that is going to fall on them now that they're senior pastors is going to do amazing damage to the kingdom of God. So I'm excited about that. What if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? You know, I, I just, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. And the Holy Spirit to me is like the genie from Aladdin. It's who he is to me. And he's funny. He's sneaky. Because God broke the law for love. I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. We must as well. And I wept and I wept and I wept as I forgave Jesus. Hey everyone, this is a new episode, a new show called The Roundtable featuring Undying Light with Paul and Alex, who are with me. Uh, I'm Nick from Christ of the Cure. This is supplemental for our show, so this is a show within shows, and it will be uh, an episode for each Undying Light and Christ of the Cure. So Alex and Paul, do y'all want to say hi real quick? Hey guys, how's it going? This is Alex from Undying Light. And... and... Hey, this is Paul. <laughs> Alex is. <laughs> So uh, Alex is part of the crime. Alex is doing an off location uh, right now. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting in my car and parked in uh, Walmart. So, oh goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, th- this is we're we're just gonna be talking about various issues, and we'll kick it off uh, with how Hillsong unashamedly proclaimed the gospel. Um, and does anyone want to? What do you think about that, Paul? Did they unashamedly proclaim the gospel? Well, according to their lyrics for their song, no. Like, it talks about redemption and Christ's blood and everything, but they're in front of literally Times Square in Good Morning America. And they did not preach repentance to anyone or what sin is, God's holiness, Christ's sacrifice. So if, if unashamedly proclaiming the gospel is singing a song that has various biblical words in it, uh, that's not really unashamedly proclaiming the gospel. That would be... Paul and Corinth on, or, or Ephesian, um, sorry, Ephesus or Athens, but no, Hillsong doesn't do that. Yeah. And we, we were looking, we were talking about that a little bit before the show, how, how they have a, a couple of references about salvation, but they don't really tell you what it's from. They just tell you, you know, don't feel bad about yourself and God loves you. You're fine kind of thing. And it's just, uh, really, I think a continued theme of watering down the gospel in our country, really. Well, I guess everywhere at this point now. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, salvation can be about literally anything, like bad finances or a, a, an accident, an illness. It's not necessarily from sin, and they don't talk about sin in their song. So, yeah, and it, it, it's, it's just vague. Yeah, and the fact that we we say that, oh yeah, they they proclaim the gospel and. They they planted seeds. It's like, but they they didn't say anything that no one's ever heard before. We're not we're not saying what people need to hear that they're a sinner who needs a savior. I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, to, to, for what I see out of it, it it's, it's just like what you guys said. It's just it's a fluffy Christianity that's coming out of this, these movements, and 
then Christians are supposed to sit back and glorify it, right? Oh, they proclaim the gospel. Yay. We're reaching so many, unlo- you know, so many lost people. In reality, they're not doing anything. They're not planting any seeds. They're not reaching anybody because they're not even proclaiming the true gospel. Yeah. You know, I can stand on a street corner and, and preach a bunch of happy, fluffy stuff, and I'll get appraises <laughs> from men. But if I stand on the street corner and preach repentance and sin and dying to yourself, get punched. Yeah, I'm gonna get yeah, I'm gonna get probably some fights kicked at me here. Yeah. And that was one of those things like so a bunch of, you know, unbelievers heard a Christian song. That's not new. I mean Yeah. You hear that all the time. <laughs> Got a lot of people listen to Lauren Daigle, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. There's a great example. She proclaims the gospel every time she sings a song, doesn't she? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I hope you I hope you air quoted gospel when you said that, Nick. Um I, I my hand was not free. I, I should have. I feel ashamed. Uh <laughs> um so yeah, that's just one of those the situations where we see it can that a continuous idea that any reference to Christianity is proclaiming the gospel. But and it goes down to like Mormons talk about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses talk about Jesus. It doesn't make it the gospel. And that's just the continued like that's the dividing line. Like it, it's not just a magical name or formula you can just throw out there and it works like that. Right. True. Um we had seen well, it was brought to my attention. Uh I think uh Alex and Paul are both attending a prophetic word conference. <laughs> Are we really? <laughs> the, the prophetic wing conference at Ultimate Faith Christian Center. It wasn't that right with, right with. Oh, a... <laughs> dude, I, I'm so psyched about it. I'm almost as psyched for Endgame last night. <laughs> well, uh, that's the master prophet or the master apostle. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. We have we have Apostle Alexander, Bishop George, Apostle George, and Master Prophet E. Bernard. <laughs> How do you master get these prophet. titles? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you become a master prophet. That's something. Um, Maybe they're trying to make him a teacher and a prophet. Yeah, so so we were talking about how we, we dug into the confessions of this. And this is stuff, like, this is normal. This is just like, this is the in-your-face version of what uh, the Word of Faith Prosperity Movement does. It's not, this isn't new. This is what they do. And we were looking at the confessions on faith. And check this out, Alex. In the Confession of Faith, it says, In the name of Jesus Christ, I am a believer. I believe in God's Word. I am what the Word says I am. I have what the Word says I have. I can do what the Word says I can do. Who does that sound like? That's a Joel Osteen ticket right there. (laughs) He wrote it himself. Yeah. He must have endorsed it or something. I don't know. Yeah, they, they only missed, Today I will be fed the Word of God. Yeah. yeah, whatever he says after he says all that nonsense. Yeah, I, I render yeah, ineffective let, every negative word. Let me just word. read the warfare one. Yeah, warfare prayer declaration of faith. Quote: You Amorite spirit, I bind you, and your power from operating against me and causing me to slander or to entice or to babble and rebel and talk about other people in Jesus' name. Yeah, it's pretty long, so I'm not. And then it goes: You Hittite spirit, you Hivite spirit, you Jebusite spirit, dude. Really? Like, those places are not existent now. Yeah. It's, it's you don't have something. spirits from, 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 Amorite, from the Amorite land or, or the Hittite land. Uh, yeah, and we were talking about how, how they do the, the positive confessions, and that's what that is. It's, it's reaffirming, creating your word with your reality. And, um, and I brought up the issue of, in the second paragraph of the confession of healing and faith or what is it healing in health they talked to satan yeah and you were talking about how that that was pretty normative in a lot of uh circles in the charismatic movement and we see that all the time but i mean not even i mean michael didn't address satan he called on yahweh and it's like who do we think we are but exactly like any human against the power of satan would crumble to pieces yeah even an angel, as you said, Nick. But uh, Christ is the only one who has complete control over Satan and could just smitterate him into oblivion in less than a second. But not us. Like our, our words are only in the. They don't work against Satan. 
like you can pray to God for protection or uh, strength against uh, temptation, but you can't talk to Satan. That's nowhere in the Bible. Only Jesus did so, and he did so in a very specific context, in a very specific time of uh, the history of redemption. Yeah. I'd say it's pretty dangerous. And whenever whenever you look at Bethel, which is um, they they teach children elementary level to, to go ahead and speak to the spirits that they see or speak to the oh, devil. No. And it's like, so you're doing this in the power of Jesus, and then you're saying that these kids who don't have that should do it too? Like, even if you're right on the first point, like, what in the world are you doing to the children? And that's just like, that's something, man. Yeah, it's painful. What do you, you think, know, Alex? I, I find it, Nick, you know, you made some, made kind of a statement about uh, having to push down to kids, and that I, I'm, I, I can't recall her name off the top of my head, but she's fairly new advocate towards helping women in the ministry there on Instagram. And she did a whole little series and her stories about a church that has a weekend long conference for teaching kids how to act in the spirit. And like the videos were mind numbing to watch this, these, these people instruct their, you know, these kids who are, you know, eight, nine years old to just be zombies. I mean, they're, it, it it's frightening the condition that they're or you know the the teachings that they're pushing these kids into yeah the fact that you think that you can teach that kind of stuff to begin with i think is a problem like that's that's a fundamental like you really think you can just teach a gift of the spirit <laughs> uh and then of course give it to the kids who don't have the spirit uh, and that's just like i don't know man um yeah, it reminds me a bit of, of uh, I hate to say this, I love my Presbyterian brothers, but wouldn't Bethel begin to consistently practice uh, infant baptism if that were the case? Like, it, if you're teaching them how to use a supposed spiritual gift, they should be baptized too. That's an interesting point. I wonder how they view, I wonder how they view that uh, issue, because I've never really thought about looking into that from their point of view. But I know that they, they definitely teach them, you know, imagine Jesus, picture you're with Jesus, you know, talk to... Uh, there was one of a Bethel youth minister who said uh, one of his elementary students saw uh, some kind of spirit in the corner. And so I said, go talk to it, you know, go go figure it out. And it's like, what? yeah, it's like, wow. Um, and it's... You might as well play, play the Ouija, right? Exactly. Like, that is just... Talk about not protecting kids... I think that's that's no, that's man. frightening. Yeah, um, oh. but I'd be interesting to see what their views are on baptism because I, I never considered that before. Um, we can we got some questions. I guess we can uh, go into some of those. We'll do one for Paul real, or for Alex real quick. Um, you highlighted double predestination, Alex. <laughs> I did. So so what you got, man? Oh. Uh, so, and the only reason I wanted I wanted that is because it's fresh on my mind from a conversation we had in the in a group a while back. Because um, somebody had asked if we believed in predestination, and essentially, as a Calvinist, you should pre- believe in predestination, a double predestination. And basically, what it boils down to is this: um, is that God has predestined the elect for uh, for eternal glory. And then he's also predestined the reprobate reprobate for destruction. And you can look at that through many lenses, mainly pulling out of Romans 9. And uh, when Paul makes the notion of the pot and the potter, and that some pots are made for glory and righteous reasons, and other pots are made for unrighteous reasons. And really what it boils down to is this, is what right does do any of us have to say to the pot maker, why did you make me? Why did you make me at all? And so uh, that's kind of the, I mean, R.C. Sproul gives a really good definition of it. Uh, I would recommend watching one of his videos. Um, but uh, that's basically uh, the whole thing in, a, in about a 30-second nutshell. 
And what, what do you have to say on that one, Paul? I've heard the R.C. Sproul's position. That's the most consistent and um, orthodox position from Reformed theology. It's, as Alex said, God predestines the elect for glory and God predestines the elect, I mean, the reprobate for dishonor or condemnation. But what we must make clear here is that God is not, is not active on both groups in the same way. God is active in the elect in the, in the sense of, of giving them faith and granting them faith and salvation actively, but he's not actively working in the reprobate. Like God is not causing unbelief or sin to spring up in the heart of the reprobate. He's just leaving them to their own devices, to their own wishes. So they're just walking in a straight line. God is not holding, holding them back as he is with us. He just plucks people out of a, out of a moving way or a road going to hell, and he just plucks people out of there. And the people he plucks out are his elect. The people who go straight on the road to hell are the reprobate. He's not actively working in both. It's active in one, passive in the other. So I guess... Yeah, uh, that was that was going to be my my piece that I meant, to, for, but forgot as I was going to add, but thank you for concluding that thought, Paul. Now you're driving, dude. It's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but it is, it's, it's, there is that, there has to be that definition. Cause some people are going to go back and say, well, if God predestined some to hell, then, you know, God's a tyrant and blah, you know, it just, they're going to really draw a bad picture for it. But in just reality, it's God is choosing essentially who to save. And that's the elect. That's us. And from that notion, we are the ones that God puts his time and effort into not the reprobate, not those who are on path to destruction. Right. So I guess a, a follow-up question that someone may have with that is in terms of, say, Romans 9, right, um, about he hardens whom he hardens, would you say that uh -huh. that—how how would you say, well, how, how is that him just being passive in that particular text? Do you want to go, Alex, or I take it? Yeah, I can take a stab at it really quick. I think— um, it's we have to boil it down to uh, specific instances, and let's look at um, Exodus to begin with as an example to that text. Is when he hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is making a statement to glorify Moses, and as he's doing that, he must take action against. Uh, that he must take action against Pharaoh. So when we say that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy on uh, and compassion on whom he has compassion, when he decides to harden a heart of the reprobate, it's in order to bring glory to himself and to allow himself to be to be shown through uh, the, the elect. It has absolutely nothing to just pick on Joe Smith, who's a reprobate, who's just walking down the road. God isn't going to just say, you know what, I'm going to just pull a thundercloud and rain over this guy's parade today. Because that doesn't bring glory to God. That's not how God operates. So what do you think, Paul? I go to Exodus uh, 4 and 8. In, four, uh, in Exodus 4, God prophesies that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Mm -hmm. But then in Exodus 8, 15, we have Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But then you have 5 and 5. You have they, they interlock each other. Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart five times, and God hardens his heart five times. So it's not as, as if God purposely hardened his heart the first time, and then Pharaoh went on hardening, hardening, hardening his own heart. Pharaoh was already hardened; he was not saved. He hated God, so his heart was already made of stone, right? So he just made it harder, and then God ultimately brought even more condemnation onto himself uh, by. Holding, holding his grace from him, thus making his heart harder toward him. But it's not as if God created uh, sin or unbelief or rebellion in his heart. He already was rebellious, and God just gave him over to his wishes. Yeah, I, I was going to tack that on there. I was like, for, for me, the hardening is you. It's it's like a confirmation or his his allowance of them to act on their desires. And he just gives them over to what they already desire. It's nothing new that he's implanting into them. It's just that they're acting in accordance with their nature. Yeah. Um. So, 
Another question we got was, when did Christian denominations first start, and why do we have them? And then, is it biblical? I want to hear your thoughts on that first, Nick. Um, in terms of when they first start, I'm not... That's a hard question. Yeah. Uh, I'm not too sure, honestly. I mean, you could argue that there were kind of sects uh, in the early church. Okay, so for me denomination is defined as a legitimate branch of the Christian church. So if you tell me that you have Baptist, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox, I'll tell you no. Uh, Eastern Orthodox and Rome are not legitimate branches of the, uh, the Christian religion. Uh, and a lot of people don't like that response, but I, I think that denominations are splits for, um, in matters of tradition or in matters of uh, liberty and conscience. And so you see different styles of music, you see different uh, ways of operating within a congregation, different organization of congregations, uh, but none of the essentials are affected. Since both Rome and the Eastern Orthodox Church changed the essential, namely in justification, uh, they don't qualify. And so whenever someone points out JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, etc., um, I have to go and say, well, that's, those aren't really part of the Church. And so there's, firstly, there's not as many as people propagate. And I would say because of Christian liberty in Scripture and because of the permissions to have differences on minor doctrines that don't affect essentials, it is biblical because, I mean, uh, that's just how we operate. We're all unique. We all have different uh, focuses, different ways of understanding things. But it, the, the main thing is whether or not the essentials are held to. And that's really what makes or breaks whether or not you're in the denomination category to begin with. I don't know. What do you all think about that? Yeah, that was a great answer. Um, my take on when did they start, um, it, it's not really fresh in my mind. I would recommend everyone to read uh, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, Volume 1. That's on church history from the 1st century to the 6th. And there you have the Novatian Church, which is from about the 3rd, 4th century. Uh, they broke away from the normative uh, Roman Roman Empire legalized Christianity, and people started treating them as if they were heretics, which in, when in fact they were not. So you have a split there in the church. Eventually, the Novatians came back, but they were always uh, true Christians. They were broken off from the from the supposedly true church that was uh, tied to the Roman Empire. Uh, after that, you have the Great Schism in 1054, which, uh, as Nick said and well said. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church are not valid expressions of, of Christianity, so we wouldn't consider them denominations. And then on 1529, we have the split between uh, Luther, Zwingli, and uh, the Anabaptist movement, in which there are created the three main denominations from the Reformation, which are the Lutheran Church, the Reformed Church, and uh, the Anabaptists, which went off to heresy and the whole Munster stuff. So if you would ask me, I would give the, the clearest answer would be in 1529 with uh, the Reformers. What about, what do you think, Alex? I think you guys both nailed it. <clears throat> I mean, I think you can also look to, Nick, you made a really good point that having different denominations or different perspectives on non-essentials is biblical because if you were to walk into for instance, a Pauline church um, versus a church that Peter had established, you're going to have two different types of worshiping, but they're all going to be around the same core doctrine. Yeah. And so I think, I think it's natural that you have different divisions. I don't think it's not biblical. I think it's well within the biblical guidelines. Um, and as long as it's, you know, they, they stay to, the core essentials of salvation, justification by, um, you know, faith alone. I think I, I'm I'm just with we're right where you guys are in, in total agreement with. I think it's I think it's good and healthy for the church. I think I think one thing I would add to that is that the notion that there are three hundred thousand different denominations is a myth, oh, yeah. and yeah. there have been Catholics who have called out Catholics for using that myth because it's basically just been regurgitated by Catholics over the years. Uh, and there's really not that many. So that wh where they say that there's all these splits, it's usually from counting uh, congregationalism, each individual congregation as a separate denomination because they're individual. And that's just that's just not how we do things. That doesn't make any sense. If you have 50 uh, congregations that are 
Baptists, then they're Baptists. I mean, it's pretty simple, I think, but regardless. Um, an interesting question we got was, in your opinion, what is the most effective argument against Calvinism? God. <laughs> what do you think, Alex? Can you can you really argue against biblical doctrine? <laughs> I mean, you can, but you you're gonna fail miserably. You're gonna yeah, you'll lose that real quick. Um, you know, I looked at that question and I thought long and hard about it, and the the, the biggest thing I feel that somebody could present a a half logical argument on would be free will, and. <clears throat> And even that is really spotty at best. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, I I couldn't personally even begin to formulate an argument to have free will because the Bible is very clear on how God establishes the will of man and how it's chained to either nature. I mean, that is probably, but if we're looking at arguments against Calvinism, probably the better some of the ones that i've heard um what else i've heard uh that yeah i've heard arguments against predestination and election i've heard i mean you can just go right down to up and you hear arguments that people try to present against all of it and they use scripture which is interesting to support their claims but they use scripture very incorrectly and they don't bring um, the context of the verses that they're using, and they don't have a full understanding of even what the verses are. And I've even had people that have presented arguments against Calvinism uh, with verses that are 100% supportive of Calvinism. It's just the, the lens of what you look through um, needs to be adjusted. So uh, yeah. what are your guys' thoughts? It's an interesting question. So um, I, I thought about it for, for a little bit too. In fact, I, I was thinking about why you're talking about it even more. And I just found myself answering the same way, but basically that tension between, uh, choice and God's sovereignty that we see, you know, you know, people always pull up Joshua choose this day kind of thing. Of course, I mean, just being silly with that, but I think it's, uh, we have a tendency to want to be able to explain and rationalize everything. And so I think the best argument against, uh, against it is that we can't explain it as fully as people want it to be explained. And so by, and of course, there's a bunch of th- flaws with that. And I, t- and I told uh, Paul before the start, it's like the, the best arguments, if I'm honest, from my point of view, are straw men. <laughs> uh, because really, it, it's just it's that over rationalization of, well, we need to be able to explain this down to the T. And compatibilism is not easy to understand. And so that's why you see people set up, oh, well, you must believe in determinism. No, nope, no, nope, that's not what it is kind of thing, you know. Um, I think that's really where it is. It's the complexity is probably the most effective argument, but it's not because it's a good argument. It's because um, it's just above our own understanding. The only thing I'd have to say about this is uh, Leighton Flowers' ridiculous argument that kind of sound logical at first that we conflate God's eternal decree with uh, his revealed will. So we would have to end up saying that abortion is a good thing because God willed it, and murder is a good thing because God willed it, and uh, suffering is a good thing because God willed it, and so is sin. But that will be conflating the decree of God with his revealed will. And in Deuteronomy 29-29, it's clear that the revealed things are for us, and God's secrets are for, for him. He keeps them. Yeah. Uh, God tells us what we should do, but he doesn't tell us all that he does. He doesn't have to. Like we, we wouldn't be able to understand half of it. Yeah, it, it goes back to that that odd, you know, that that position that man thinks that he can put himself into. It's, it's like man thinks that he has a right to question God. At the end of the day, you just don't. That's it. Like yeah, we're true. so we're so arrogant to think that we have that right, and we just don't. And and so that's kind of the route I've gone. It's like you, you have no place to question God. God is not on trial. We are. <laughs> we're the sinners. He's not. Um, I I guess we have time for one more question. What is a good age to teach Calvinism to children? In the womb. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Paul Washer. 14 days. Paul Washer on, on, on the womb. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as the heartbeat sounds, you get the headphones on the, on her tummy. 
<laughs> uh, no joke. Uh, I actually was. So my daughter just turned one. I read. I started reading her the Institutes a couple of months ago. <laughs> uh, I, That's I think, good. I think realistically, um, it's it's not a matter of teaching Calvinism or or anything of that. It's teaching them the proper uh, understanding of the Bible. Yeah. Which thing obviously comes back to Calvinism because it's just another name for the Bible. <clears throat> and uh, what it is is though. From, from the time that they can sit and understand, from the time that they can, um, they don't necessarily have to read, but they have to comprehend. Because uh, you can listen and comprehend quicker than you can read. So work with your young children and just teach them the Bible stories. Teach them, you know, all the stuff. But don't, uh, don't make it too easy to where when you need to teach them the harder stories that they, they don't have that capacity. So give them the entire story. Yeah. Don't get fluffy. And read through Romans with them. Read through the book of John with them. Read through Ephesians and read through 1st, 2nd John. Read through the letters of Peter. I mean, go through all of these books in the, in the New Testament. And just, uh, you know, and, and as they get older, they will understand it more and more. And the depth uh, of the well gets deeper. And uh, it's, it's just an ongoing, I mean... For me, I've been studying this stuff for a few years myself, and, and it's just, it gets deeper, and it's just something to dive into myself more and more and more. Um, so I don't think there's any, I don't think any age is too young, but I think once they can start to really comprehend, that's when you really want to start to spend deliberate time teaching them just the basic Bible stories, and then you build from there. What do you think, Paul? I'm not a parent. <laughs> Both you, of you guys are. You, you don't teach your dog. Yeah, I'd, you don't teach your dog doctrine. Uh, I do actually. He's your baby. I, I have shared the gospel with him many times. <laughs> um, no, I, I have a seven-year-old niece, so I try to teach her. She behaves badly because her her father's a mess. Um, I have not introduced her to the doctrines of grace because I, I wanted to have a good grasp on, on who Jesus is and what salvation is. And I, I'm not with her as often as I should or as often as I would like to be. Uh, but yeah, I would agree with Alex completely. Like teach them as soon as they have a, a, a cognitive realization of, of what what the words you're telling them are and what they mean. Yeah, um, I, I kind of see it firstly as kind of what Alex was saying, that the question itself kind of like separates Calvinism from, from the full counsel of God. So it's kind of like, well, you teach your kids the Bible uh, as early as you can. If we're talking specifically about Calvinism, I, I see it as you teach them total depravity as early as you can for as long as you can, and then whenever the time is right, unconditional election will pop up. Um, because there's that question of, well, if I'm totally deprived, then, then how do I become saved? And that's where you know that you can start stepping into that water, I think. But that, I think that's the key for everything is like you're, you're more concerned about them understanding the gospel. And so you, you want to start with total depravity. You, you start showing them like we do these things because we sin. That is our natural inclination. You, you, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And we all need forgiveness. And you start pr kind of preaching the gospel at a young age. I, I don't think that Calvinism per se is um, something that needs to be uh, brought to light first, but that it will logically follow after you've taught them that they're they're dead in their sins that they need a savior. I think that it'll just follow. Yeah. Do you think we have time for two more? Sure. Or two very interesting ones I want to tackle. What you and got? I want your guys' opinions too. Uh, are there still prophets and apostles in today's world? <laughs> nope. Moving on. <laughs> okay, well, next one. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> we, we already know there's a master prophet at the conference. <laughs> oh, you're right. So no, there are no prophets there are master prophets man master prophets who, which is even better there's another guy from ihop who called himself a super apostle because he because apostles listened to him so there's super <laughs> apostles and there's master prophets now we all know this oh my god they should get hired for a dc movie or marvel yo gosh <laughs> it's 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 insane super apostles master prophets what's it, next it, uh it, titan teacher it's really insane that they that they do believe in some type of apostolic succession because that's what it is. They're the channel of truth now with their secret Gnostic knowledge, and it's like, come on, man. 
Yeah. And people try to swing it different ways. Oh, it, it just means like they speak forward scriptures. Like, nope, that's not what they think when they say that kind of thing. Um, and yeah. they, they try to pretend. And that's one of the things that really gets me about these movements is that they're so dishonest. You read their confessions of faith, expe- except for this one. This one was like right in your face. But other ones, like they're really good at hiding it. And you'll read through their confession like that looks sound, sound, sound. So, but they're using the same terminology with different definitions. And that's an issue. Um but I, I would say no. I mean, if you're talking about apostle in the general sense as like a messenger or an envoy or like someone who plants churches, if you want to define it that way, I would say, sure, why not? You're planting churches. Okay, whatever. But in terms of uh, apostles such as like the apostles appointed by Jesus, no, no way. Um, I'm sure the, Paul has a lot of The problem with, with telling people that someone who, who was planting churches and going from church to church or a, a, an itinerary preacher— the problem is if you call that person an apostle, you're going to have everyone thinking of a twisted interpretation of that word that you're using, and they're going to be thinking that it's a true apostle from the Bible, that he's being taught by Jesus himself in mystical kind of ways. And we have in Acts 1, clearly, uh, the apostles need to find a replacement for Judas. And Peter comes up with the rules, the characteristic that an apostle must have in order to fulfill the office. And I read from verse 21 in Acts chapter 1. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must come with us as a witness to his resurrection. Yeah. So people need to have been a witness of Christ's earthly ministry and witness his resurrection. If you don't fulfill those categories, you cannot be considered an apostle by any means. So you're a charlatan and a heretic. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 also calls himself the last one, the last apostle. As the last, uh, he says, as an abortive one, he appeared to me, last of them all. You can't have apostles today. They're, all, of, all of the people who are calling themselves apostles today, please run from them as fast as you can. I guess uh, my, my question for you then, uh, for, for listeners and whatnot, is whenever you see the office of apostles listed in Scripture, uh, it would be best to say that those are just the apostles appointed. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't have any other choice. What do you think, Alex? You agree? Yeah. I, no, I totally agree. And I, you know, Paul nailed it right there when he yeah. said that Paul was the last apostle. And, and I find it interesting that when you— give people that scripture, um, they, they, they disregard it entirely. They're like, well, no, this guy here is an apostle. He's preaching God's word. And he's, you know, and if you really think about it, if you listen to what he says, any of these apostles, um, it's not biblical. It's not biblical teaching. Uh, it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning that, uh, it's, not a uh, sound message. It's not dying to yourself. There's nothing about sin, repentance. There's, it's it's solely about glorification of yourself. It is these apostles do nothing but preach selfism, and 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 a, and a, and a false gospel. So yeah, yeah. There's there's no there's no active apostle walking this earth today, and there hasn't been for. Uh, some 1900 plus years whenever you know Paul died so in and, and 70 I want to throw in there that whenever like I was talking about the the definitions I say that for the more for the benefit of the doubt of other individuals uh, at, at the end of the day though we, we should really be conforming our definitions to what the Bible has to say about them which where Paul just nailed it there in terms of yep. talking about the qualifications um, what, what was the other question you're looking at Paul uh, who should perform baptisms? The epistles never mention it, and the Great Commission is given to all Christians. So would it be safe to say that anyone can baptize a new believer, including women baptizing men? That's an interesting one. Um, yeah. I, I'd like to hear y'all's first on that one. Alex? Oh, um, so the Great Commission is a process of going out and making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you look at the way the early church was established, and if you look at a lot of even modern, and I'm not going to use the word churches in the sense of the American church, but churches is like in um, around the world, the global churches, uh, there is disciple making 
in the middle of nowhere, China, and people are baptizing each other there. And the reason I, I am okay with, in, in outside of a non-structured church building, baptizing believers, um, is because these people are suffering heavy persecution. And these individuals will die for the gospel. And in my eyes, that to me is far more uh, riveting, if you would, to to constitute to that definition. Because here in America, we've got this comfortable life. We're not really, we face persecution, but it's not, you know, we don't get the type that they do, you know, like we had in Sri Lanka last weekend um, or in China that they have now. They don't, we don't face that, that ongoing persecution. And so to get somebody baptized and get them baptized quickly, um, I'm, to, I'm totally for it. I think it's a, 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 an awesome idea. Now, the question I think is, is do you allow women to baptize men? Um, nah, I don't know. I mean, there's not scripture that says that they shouldn't. Um, and I think in, in certain circumstances, I mean, I, I, I could understand it, um, but I'm open, obviously, to, uh, to, to other opinions and other people's perspectives to solidify my view on that. So, uh, Paul, what are your thoughts? I think anyone could do it, but yeah. uh, I'm talking about the original context in Matthew 28. Mm-hmm. Like Christ is uh, commending the disciples to go in and baptize people. There weren't any women there. I'm not right. saying that women shouldn't preach the gospel to other men, but we don't have any evidence of, of a woman baptizing a believer in the whole of Scripture. And I, in the in the context of Matthew 28, given that every single disciple was a man, and they were to become apostles, like they were to have authority over the churches, um, I would say that, only men should do it, but I don't see any specific situation in which any other Christian shouldn't be able to do it. Like if, if I were to preach the gospel to someone and that person would convert right there, wanted to be baptized, and there was water nearby, I don't see why I couldn't do it. I think anyone can do it. Anyone that has been granted the, the privilege of the Great Commission, which is every single one of us, I think we should do it. But women are, I don't think they conform to the pattern that the New Testament establishes for pastors and people in authority in the Bible. I'm not saying that I have authority in the in in any church, even local or global, but uh, the disciples, the original disciples were men, and the sacraments are to give are to be imparted by uh, roles within the church. And since women cannot be uh, pastors or, have a position of authority over other men. I think that that you hold uh, in, in very high esteem the person who baptizes you, and you have a certain respect for them, and and you listen to what they have to say. So, if a woman were to do that, we would have a problem there with First uh, Timothy chapter two and the rest of Scripture. I think uh, I think I would agree with with that, um, and I like what what you were saying, Alex, about you know those in other countries who, who are willing to die for the gospel. And that kind of got me thinking more about like, uh, we need to be more serious about baptism because we'll baptize anyone who walks up the aisle without vetting them and seeing if, well, I don't know if vetting is the right word, without seeing whether or not they're regenerate and letting, you know, because it's become such a thing where everyone is Christian because they got baptized at one point in their life. And um, that I think that who baptizes you, like Paul was saying, is like there's a reverence there, there's this understanding there. The person who's baptizing you would be someone who has the ability to discern that kind of thing, I think. And as uh, men being spiritual leaders, it would make sense that they would be the ones executing that type of, um, you know, that type of, well, whatever you want to call it. Um, Yeah. So It reminded me of of Elevation Church. Did you know, guys, that they did, like, I don't know what they call them. I think it's uh, spontaneous baptism or lightning baptisms. Oh, yeah. Uh, this charlatan of Furtick, he just uh, calls people, who wants to be baptized? And someone raises their hand and they bring him up immediately and they baptize him right there in the middle of the quote-unquote sermon. Yeah. That's, and, and the person thinks that they're saved afterwards because they got some water on them by a 
dude who uses squirt guns on the stage. I, you I, know, I, go ahead. I just think, you know, it, it makes another element to baptism, too, because, Paul, you bring up a good point that these lightning baptisms happen in these heretic churches. And for one, you and I, and this is probably a, a bold statement, but you don't have to be baptized to enter the kingdom of God. And it, it's not a salvational piece. Um, and then to the flip side of that, even those who are baptized may not enter the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Being baptized doesn't mean you're automatically saved or not saved. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to be very clear with, and Nick, you were, you were going down that trail uh, around vetting these people. When um, you go through baptism, like my church teaches a baptismal class that if you want to sign up for it, if you're not an active member in the church and you haven't made a, you know, a, a proclamation of, of faith statement, then you have to go through this class and you have to be taught the fundamentals of baptism. You have to be taught the fundamentals of faith. And then you can decide whether or not you want to go through with it. Because it's not just a, it, baptism shouldn't be treated as just a, you know, a fling in the middle of a sermon. Yeah. It, it should be a, a, a very on-purpose and dedicated uh, ceremony. And even if it has to be done, like, like in my eyes, if like somebody's, you know, in a heavily persecuted country and they have to do it in the diet in the middle of the night and um, it's got to be quick, they still take the time to make sure that the gospel is preached to these people first. Yeah. They don't just go out and just grab, you know, John Smith from the middle of the city and baptize him because he might want to become a Christian. I So we, we just have to be very on point with it. And I would argue that the reason why we have so many self-professing Christians who don't look like Christians is because we so flippantly baptize people. Um, oh, yeah, totally. You're talking about like the, the Billy Graham crusades and all that, where people are just coming up. Oh, I made a decision once, basically some like minor, uh, you know, behavioral reform. And then all of a sudden, Oh wait, I wasn't regenerate, but, and you know what? Those are the people who are the hardest to reach because they think they're saved. Yeah. And it creates this big, massive problem we're in. And so it's like, we need to see if there's fruit. We need to, I think that we need to have these individuals like, can you tell me the gospel? Show me the transformation in your own words without any aid. And and is there evidence that you are mortifying, that you are growing? And I think that, uh, and it's sad because I don't think that's how it was before. And I think that our culture has made it to where we should probably do that. And that's kind of a sad thing um, that we've abused it like that. But well, even with the Lord's Supper, honestly, oh like, yeah, uh, some churches don't even notice who's converted and who's not, and just give it out to anyone. That in the early church would have been sacrilege. The early church had two services. The first one, everyone was welcome in order to hear the gospel, and the second one, they uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper. So every unbeliever and the, the person that was not a part of the church, they had to go out. They were not allowed to stay in and take part. Because if they were, the, the Christians then and there would have been condemning them and actually augmenting their judgment. So that, that's something the, early, the modern church does not do well. Like, we don't sit and actually ask people, why are you taking the Lord's Supper? Do you know that if you're not a true convert, this will actually be worse for you and you will be even more condemned? It's a scary thought, but uh, we don't pay attention to it. Yeah. I think that's kind of what it all boils down to. We, uh, our culture tends to just not take things seriously enough. Um, but I don't know. You know, also just a last bit of a statement is not even just not taking it serious enough, but it's an instant gratification society now where oh, yeah. we instantly want to be baptized. We're instantly, you know, we can answer a, a yes or no question about communion and take the Lord's supper and, but we never do self-examination. We never look at ourselves and say, do I really have the fruit of the spirit? Am I really saved? Am I really doing the work for the kingdom? Am I making an effort in my own personal life to kill the sin? And am I really making this effort to grow the kingdom of God? And if you can't answer yes to any of those questions, then you should not be coming to the Lord's table to take communion and you probably should reconsider your baptism. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that was solid. I think we we got a pretty solid episode here. Um what do you guys think? 
That's always a blast yeah, with I you think. two guys. So yeah. I'm glad yeah, it was whatever. Awesome. Yeah, we'll have to uh, try to do this. Like I said, we're going to try to do this once a month, and uh, it'll be on both um, Undying Light and Crisis the Cure. Uh, it'll be the episode for those. Um, and these guys are working on. Are y'all on? Are y'all doing a Total Depravity Part Three? Or are y'all moving on? I can't remember. No, no, we're moving on uh, to Unconditional Action. Uh, yeah. Hey, you never know, man. Part Three would be too much. You guys, you guys go deep, so you never know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, Total Depravity was was a mind killer that day. <laughs> it was good. It was really good. Um, so yeah, we'll get to back together, and I hope y'all guys all enjoyed. Uh, this episode, and that'll be it. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.